Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 56. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionTanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How you been doing, Fooliman? I'm doing well as ever. You know me. I'm just a sunny person with a sunny outlook on life. So, um, yeah, Fuleman's been replaced this podcast, evidently. I'll, I'll try and <laughs> find the real one soon, but. <laughs> yeah, look, the Leafs played the Rangers last night and they got goalied. There's really not a need to read too much more into it than that, I don't think. Uh, pe- people get frustrated when you say, oh, they played well, but they lost. And they start rolling their eyes and be like, see again, this contender, supposedly, plays well, but can't even beat a bottom feeder. It's like sometimes you just. Run into a goalie who's going to make, like, 45 saves, you know? Yeah. I mean, Tampa, last night, outshot St. Louis by, like, some ridiculous amount and lost. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, St. Louis is obviously a much better team than New York. But, you know, it, it happens. It's not it's not really a big deal. Especially, yeah. I mean, if the Leafs were fighting for anything in terms of seeding or playoff matchup, I'd probably be more concerned. But we're not. So I'm not. Yeah. We're kind of locked in here, and it's just a matter of... Do we get the key guys going? And if you're looking for encouraging news on that score, Austin Matthews was a beast last night. He went ham on the Rangers. It's a They're very lucky that he didn't just rack up a ton of goals. Or you could say unlucky because they probably want to tank at this point. But uh, Yeah, it yeah. was one of Matthews' strongest games. And it, it was interesting in that it, it was kind of clear uh, last night that the least stars were really the ones driving the bus, right? The Tavares mm-hmm. line was excellent. The Matthews line was excellent. And then whatever pairing Morgan Riley was on was yeah. phenomenal. And that's a good recipe for success. But with the Matthews line specifically, it felt as if Matthews was doing everything there, right? Like normally when we see that group, like Nylander really has his hands in the in the pot and he's doing a lot of stuff too. And I don't think he was bad per se last night. And reportedly he's been struggling with some illness. So maybe we saw some of that. But Matthews was just doing everything on his line to a degree that we're not really used to seeing uh especially when someone shares a line with good players like Nylander and Janssen so he was absolutely dominant um the Tavares line was great Morgan Riley had an unbelievably good game yeah and then some guy who in his career in general is not that great a goalie uh just stoned us I don't know what it is with this Rangers backup uh Alexander Georgiev he just gives us hell this is twice now that he's done it and, you know, it's very tempting to try and find some sort of larger explanation for it, but I find it hard to believe that this team, playing as well as it did last night, is just totally stymied in some sort of larger sense by a 905 goalie against the rest of the NHL. So, not yeah. super concerned about that. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to convince me that because the Leafs generated a bunch of chances and didn't score, that they're somehow not a good offensive team. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, (laughs) smarten up a little. (laughs) Yeah, we're not going to do this. And and, like, I think the thing is, is that with the general malaise that's been around the Leafs lately, people are like reacting dramatically to any suggestion that like the news isn't all that bad. Um, This isn't like always the case, but just seeing the way some people reacted to hearing that the Leafs played well and lost, they were like, no, they can't have played well. They're a bad team now and I hate it. It's like, you got to chill out a little bit, man. <laughs> You're not going to make it to the playoffs, much less through them, if that's your attitude. So, yeah. Anyway, that's the story of the game last night. Um, 
we were going to address a couple of newsier things that have been happening lately in the Leafs and in the league in general before we go deep on the Leaf stuff as we are wont to do. So the big news this week in Leafland, and Leafland is a fever dream, let us remind you, is that Kyle Dubas, the Leafs GM, and Mike Babcock, the Leafs coach, were purported to have a rift between them, or some sort of friction, or a fracas, or other words that I'm going to need a thesaurus to look up. Uh, a schism. A schism. Oh, yeah, I like that. Did you know that there was a schism in the Catholic Church where they had two popes for a while? Anyway, that's not important. Um, <laughs> why, why do you know that? Why do I know any of the things that I know is the real question. I didn't... <laughs> I didn't study that. I don't know where that came from. So, uh, Kyle Dubas has made some decisions with regard to the Leafs, like keeping Justin Hole on the roster, keeping Garrett Sparks as a goalie, and choosing to waive Curtis McElhinney instead. Uh, mostly those are the two that stand out to me. He kind the Muzzin trade, I guess. Yeah, you can argue the Muzzin trade. Um, I'm surprised uh, at how that's kind of been spun. The thinking on the Muzzin trade was that Mike Babcock would have preferred a right-hand shot. And, you know, so would I in a perfect world. But that wasn't really in the offing at Muzzin's level. And Muzzin is, in most respects, Babcock's kind of player, I think. So really, what stands out to me is mostly Justin Hall and McElhinney is the real things. But Babcock made a comment when Muzzin was acquired, something along the lines of, you know, it would be ideal if we didn't have five left shots out of our six defensemen, but this is what we got and we'll make it work. And somehow that kind of bubbled back again as part of a pattern of conduct on Babcock's part in some eyes. People said, oh, this is proof that it's been an ongoing rift because a week or so ago, he said that uh, teams like Nashville that had depth could survive injuries better, basically, um, than the implication was the Leafs could in some quarters, but he didn't say that explicitly. He was just complimenting the depth of really high-end teams like Nashville and Tampa. Am I missing something in terms of the evidence here of a rift? Because I think that was pretty much it. Yeah, it was a lot of veiled comments, right? Or, or comments that could be interpreted as, as veiled, uh, mm-hmm. as a veiled shot against Dubas and the management. And I, I mean, I guess... His Babcock's continuing um, kind of somewhat snide remarks about Garrett Sparks probably also play into it too. Mm-hmm. Right. So Babcock, <laughs> Babcock I, I'm not really comfortable making assertions about what these guys think based on media, but like, I I bet Babcock goes home. And it's like fucking Sparks. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Of all the things that people have speculated and attributed opinions to him, I'm always like, there are a lot of ways you can read that. He's often playing the media game. He's a savvy guy. He's doing different things at different times. I really don't think he likes Garrett Sparks very much. Um, and I think it's like half because Garrett Sparks has been kind of a mediocre-ish low-end backup. And also because Sparks is very emotional and outspoken. And, you know, he had a quote after he and the Leafs got blown out. And he's like, this team needs to play with more emotion. Everyone needs to, you know, be more emotional and that sort of stuff. And there was a lot the of... Funny, the funny thing is he was asked a follow-up question of, like, in the lo- in the room or on the ice? And Sparks was like, I don't know, fucking everywhere. doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> right? Who cares? Yeah. And so a, a lot of people were like, hey, Garrett, um, could you emotionally try to save 
like the fucking puck once in a while. And so there was a lot of kind of snide commentary on that. Right. And I don't, we discussed it before, but like, I don't think Sparks' comments were like bad necessarily. No. Um, but it's also a bit of a kind of know your place thing where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you just showed up here. You're the backup. You're literally like the least or the most dispensable part of this team. Yeah. Like we lost two guys who could replace you on waivers. Yeah, like you're, you're, if I'm you're, sorry, man, if you're but... a backup for the Leafs, your primary job description is be cheap. Yeah, like be cheap. Don't totally implode like Jonas and Roth did. Um, kind of hold it together. And in fairness, I think we have to acknowledge that Curtis McElhinney, and we did say this at the time, he has the persona of a backup. He has the temperament of a backup. He's a journeyman player. He's in his 30s. He's not convinced that he's going to go and you know, win the Vesna and steal the starting job or anything. He's going to show up, quietly do his job, flail around, somehow put up a 9.20 save percentage and go home. And that's kind of the ideal for a backup in a lot of eyes. Garrett Sparks isn't quite like that. I don't want to write him off as a goalie because he's still quite athletic. He might acclimatize to the NHL more as he gets more into it. He's not... Uh, especially old. I mean, he's not like 21 anymore, but he's still at the point where I'm like, well, maybe he's finding his way or something. But the truth is, is that hierarchy in teams is something. And I hate to sound kind of old school about it, but you know how it is. When a guy who's a key contributor kind of says, okay, guys, we got to smarten up, that carries weight in the locker room. That's just natural with any team project. You know, the people who are driving the most value have more of a say. It's natural in any work environment too, right? Yeah. yeah. When I was working in in finance, if I went to a team meeting and started being like, we need to do this, you know, as like the most junior person there, it would have looked ridiculous. It would have been ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's sort of an impulse of like, hey, who the fuck is this guy? Um And, you know, it doesn't even mean that he's wrong or that he's right. I mean, judging how much emotion anyone is playing with is impossible from the outside and probably not a lot easier from the inside even, unless the guy's really checked out. And this comment was made, you know, right after a game, right? Like, adrenaline's running high. And that's where you have to You're not thinking straight necessarily. You're not, you know, you're an athlete. You're not, your job isn't really to articulate your thoughts in the best way possible right after a game, right? So, you know, I'm not really concerned in that sense. It was just kind of not the best time and not the best person to make that comment. Yeah, it was silly, but at the same time, it shouldn't be any kind of damning sin or anything like that. Like, no, like people should forget about this going forward um, is kind of my opinion on it, but it was probably not the best chosen sorts of words. But putting that aside, uh, the supposed rift between Dubas and Babcock, I think a lot of things play into this. Uh, Dubas made some extremely ambiguous tweets that were read as being veiled shots at his own coach. I do not understand that at all. It was like was very bananas. obviously a shot at the media, wasn't it? Yeah, that's how it read to me. So he had a, well, excuse me, he retweeted a cartoon that was tweeted by Daryl Morley. Sorry, Morey. Daryl Morey, excuse me. Yeah, this is going to happen when I do basketball. I'm just going to botch everything. I'm sorry. Yeah. But uh, it was a, uh, an NBA GM, Houston Rockets. Am I right about that? Houston Rockets, very progressive GM, considered one of the better ones in the league. Um, so with some knowledge of analytics, uh, I don't want to draw the line too close directly between him and Dubas, but, you know, some similarities there. I think it'd be fair to say that Dubas, in a lot of respects, would hope to aspire to the type of career that Maury has had. 
Yeah, he's been he's done almost everything but win a title, hasn't he? Yeah, and Maury kind of famously made just some absurdly good moves where he, he was able to build a contender without ever really tanking. That's impressive in the NBA. Yes, very much so. Mm. So, yeah, that's kind of where we're coming from in terms of the source of it. But the cartoon had two lines of people lined up in front of two pathways. And there was a very long line of people following a path that was labeled simple but wrong. And there were only a few stragglers wandering down the path that said complex but right. You can read that kind of any way. Caldubas just endorsed the tweet, but he didn't, you know, add any additional commentary. But I think you really have to reach pretty hard for that to be him shooting at his coach. And I think the fact that people were willing to do that was one, there's a fan base that's been frustrated with some of Babcock's decisions, and they want so badly to believe that Caldubas is their guy and is going to do what they want. When the reality is, Kyle Dubas is a very smart guy. I think he's an adept general manager. I don't think he's been perfect, but I think he's been good. But he's not anyone other than himself. He's not an avatar for anyone's frustrations, and he will not Xerox anyone's idea of how the team ought to be run. And so, it does seem to me like it makes a lot more sense that this is a shot at the media who are doing all this punditry and putting interpretations on the actions of him and his coach. And, and putting simple defaulted. actions on it. Where exactly. It's like, Simplistic. Where, yeah, these guys disagree and don't get along. And look, I do not doubt for a second that they have some serious differences of opinion about how to run a hockey team, how to build a hockey team, everything. But, like, that's natural. Like, Fulman and I are probably the most two most like-minded people you'll meet, and even we disagree about things. I know, to our own astonishment every now and then. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, nobody is in 100% accord all the time. It would be kind of creepy if they were, and it would be worse for the organization. If they were, I think, there has to be someone in the room who is going to say, hey, I don't know about this. Uh, certainly in a position of importance and authority. You need to cultivate an atmosphere where people can disagree internally. And so some people were saying, well, Babcock is disagreeing externally. They're saying that he's dropping all these hints in the media. I just don't read his comments that way. Yeah, and like, so I, James Myrtle had an article about this, or he addressed it in his mailbag recently, and he said that, you know, disconnect is a fair way to put it. I don't know how you could watch all that's unfolded this season and not see it. It feels like every transaction that's made by the front office gets a little dig from the coach publicly. It's real. And I guess uh, Myrtle is more plugged in and connected than we are by, you know, order a huge amount. Um. And maybe this is kind of willful ignorance on our part. I, when I see those quote-unquote digs, it I'm not really, I don't see what's so diggy about them. Yeah, it, you know, the, the comment about depth read to me like he was doing what a lot of coaches do a lot of the time, which is complimenting a high-end opponent. You know, he was saying, look, this is the top-tier teams. They're playing well despite suffering injuries and stuff. We need to aspire to that, especially in the light of the fact that his team had kind of been struggling in the absence of Gardner and Dermott. And, and well, I mean, he's, he's also correct, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> That's sort of lost in all this is that he's 100% right. Like, w- but, we're, we're struggling in part because, you know, we're playing Justin Hall and Igor Ozaganov, and, you know, they're not really very good. Yeah, I'd like this as, a, as an aside. The Justin Hall thing, I'm sure he could be better. I was just about to rant it. about this. Like, I, I do what? not Go get what it. people see in Justin Hall right now. They, and look, Babcock 
Babcock does not trust him to like, you know, cook dinner, let alone play an <laughs> NHL game. He's playing like yeah. eight minutes a night, which is frankly impressive when you're a defenseman. Yeah. He he is so clearly sheltering Hall and Ozagana, that even Marinson when he was there, to a slightly lesser degree with Marinson, but still, like he very much does not trust them. And no. I get that you can say, okay, well, Hall needs to be trusted in order to, you know, actually shine. But it's like, he, he, I just don't really see what's there. Like, he, he seems, you know, he's not like completely out of place the way, you know, Ryan O'Byrne obviously was when he was a Leaf. But mm-hmm. he's not bringing a lot to the table. I, it, it's like, I, I, I don't, I feel like the best case scenario for Justin Hall is like, yeah, he's probably like the right-handed version of Andreas Borgerman in terms of effectiveness. Like, he he's fine, but nothing spe- yeah. spectacular. And I, I just don't... I don't see why people have aligned themselves with him to such a degree. I haven't seen anything that makes me think that that should be the case yet. And granted, I don't really watch the Marlies. And, you know, by all accounts, he's an excellent AHL defender. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't really... He hasn't really done anything at the NHL level to make me excited about him. And he's also like 27. Yeah, that's the other thing is that there's not really much growth there that you could realistically expect. But in the AHL, he was playing with Travis Dermott. Like, we've already seen that, albeit on a very sheltered NHL third pairing, Travis Dermott can elevate a replacement level guy to surprisingly good results. Um, I wouldn't be astonished if that happened to some extent in the AHL. And it doesn't mean that Justin Hall isn't a good... AHL defenseman. I'm sure he is by all accounts, but like it's a reason to maybe pump the brakes on this guy was ready to walk in. Because I've seen some things where, you know, I saw him analogize to Nick Jensen, who we've talked about a bit previously and who had kind of a coming out party last season for the Detroit Red Wings and who has turned into a top four defenseman relatively late. And some people were saying, that's Justin Hall. If only Mike Babcock could give him a chance. Okay, why though? Like, what are we basing this on? Because when I look at Justin Hall, what I see is a guy who is pretty big, who is not a mobile, but who has not done a lot defensively to impress me. And maybe you say he becomes uh, kind of a high-risk, high-reward defenseman who can move the puck, who can do all of those things that are beneficial. But I'm not seeing that he's providing that kind of special added value that really makes me think Babcock is screwing up not playing him. Maybe this is just a level of deference that I offer to the coach, but it just seems to me so much like people have hitched their wagon to this because they're mad at how the defense is. And the reality is we need another uh, good top four right-shooting defenseman which is hard to come by. But that doesn't mean that Justin Hull is the guy. It's the conclusion I keep coming to. Yeah, at, like, with Jensen, that, that's frankly incredibly insulting to Nick Jensen. <laughs> Nick <laughs> yeah, Jensen came into the plug. league and was like, immediately, um, like within his first partial season, he started playing second pair minutes in, yeah. in Detroit and started doing pretty well in them. Mm-hmm. On a team that is garbage. Yeah. So, and like, yes, he certainly had a, he had a non-traditional quality. path where his first year was in... When he was in the NHL, was when he was 26. But mm. he succeeded almost immediately. Yeah, right. And, and you could say, "Oh, well, Blazo gave him a chance." I mean, like Blazo doesn't have a choice. Who the fuck else is out there in Detroit? <laughs> um, the remains of Mike Green. That's about it. Yeah. So you know, you could say, "Oh, well, if you know Justin Hall got to play top four minutes, maybe he would do the same." It's like, oh, okay, you can think that, but I don't really see the evidence for it, based on yeah. what we've seen. 
And, you know, I'm just not persuaded that his AHL performance bears that out. Uh, from what I know of it from the people that I've talked to, it doesn't mean, again, that I think that he did badly. It's just there's been a lot of drawing straight lines between he did well in the AHL, therefore he is guaranteed to be better at the NHL than the guys who are there. Like Nikita Zaitsev, for all his flaws, and we've complained about him a hell of a lot, he was a number one defenseman in the KHL. Like, he was really, really good in uh, a top pro league. It's like, it's hard to play well in the NHL. It's really, really difficult. You know, Rasmus Sandin is having a great year down there, and apparently the Leafs looked at him and said, he's good, but he's not quite ready yet. And if you were just saying, oh, did he do well in the AHL? Well, he did in everything except goals for percentage, apparently, which I'm not going to worry about too much. But... You can reasonably look at that and say, you know what, still we want to give him some more time. So bringing this back around to Babcock and Dubas, I don't see that the decisions that he's purported to really disagree with Dubas on, and Dubas apparently likes Justin Hall, which fair enough, he could be right to do so. He knows his guys from the AHL. Uh, he certainly favors them. Well, he I, likes I also think one reason he likes Justin Hall is because he has a like basically league minimum contract for next year, so he can be either our seventh D or a sixth D next year and you know save us some money yeah which we will need so yeah I, I don't think that um you know Dubas dislikes him I think Dubas likes him as a player for whatever reason we can point out and the contract definitely does bear on that but that coming down to being like a gigantic rift I don't know there's too much speculation there and when reporters of the level of connectedness of Myrtle, of Elliot Friedman. When they say things, there's often an ambiguity between I'm reporting based on what I think and I'm reporting based on what I know but cannot say. And I've wondered once or twice here because it really did not seem to me like there was enough public information. Right, so it might be that they have like some private information that they can't really divulge and then that in conjunction with the Babcock comments, would like that allows them to read the Babcock comments in a different light and maybe a more correct light. But based on what we know publicly, it's hard to see. I, I think it's not immediately obvious that Babcock's comments are, you know, veiled shots at Dubis specifically. It, it, I just don't really see that. And like. You know, maybe they do have that kind of inside information that they can't quite divulge, and that's what's leading into this. But that's never really been made clear either, mm -hmm. right? They've never said, you know, I've heard X, and maybe they can't, but, you know, that means we I have no idea what they're actually saying. And that, yeah, that we have to go far on more to Friedman than, than to Myrtle, to be clear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing about Friedman is that he opened his 31 thoughts column that he does weekly with a discussion of this. And... I was so struck by how thin the examples he was taking. Like that tweet that we referenced where Kyle Dubas retweeted the, the Daryl Morey cartoon. I really think you have to be reaching quite hard to use that as a data point in favor of anything in this discussion. Do, also, do we think Dubas is stupid enough to like subtweet his coach on Twitter? No, like he's, <laughs> I mean, that would be like this, this is a guy weird. who says nothing. Even when he talks to the media, we get nothing out of it. He's a friendlier version of Lou. Yeah, 
I, I remember, like, quite early on, Katja was pointing out, she's like, you know, he doesn't really say much more than Lou Lamorello does, you know? He has a smile, he has a winning demeanor, and he's youthful, and he exudes that kind of schoolboy energy that he's got about him. But he's not stupid. And he's been in this business for quite some time, you know? He was working in the OHL as a teenager. One of the biggest ironies of, like, Dubas's, I guess... Uh, how he's seen in the media is that he's not a hockey man. He 100% is. <laughs> he was born into he's... a hockey family. He started working with the Sioux because of his parents and family's connection there. Like, he's 100% a hockey man. Yeah, he like he could not be more of, like, a pure Northern Ontario hockey scion of a hockey tribe or something like that. He calls her a, a and... remote control, like a TV box or something. Yeah. <laughs> Which the TV clicker box. has no relevance yeah. to anything, but I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, I found that fascinating. I don't know. That's just a regionalism that I ought to look into and figure out where that's coming from. But anyway, it is really interesting just seeing how this is narrativized because there's a lot about perceptions of Dubas that plays into how these things are read. He's the young guy. He's the energetic guy who's going to come in and shake up the things. And Babcock is the old school guy. You know, if you're trying to write a story, and again, I'm deferring to Katya here because she had a great piece this week uh, about the narratives that surround Dubas and Babcock. And there's a real temptation to, to read it as young progressive guy wants to make changes, old school hard ass won't let him. And when there are frustrations with Babcock, when the team per is perceived to be not progressing as it should, all of those things slide neatly into place for the narrative as to what's not going quite right with the Leafs these days. I just think the bottom line is there's nothing in the public evidence to support any meaningful rift. The most you can say is maybe they disagree about some stuff if we stretch a bit. Well, I, 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 would, but, I would say they almost certainly disagree about stuff, but I think every GM disagrees with their coach on a couple things. Yeah, but the thing is, is that I'm less confident saying what those things especially are. The, the uh, reality is, we, we don't know that much about Dubas's opinions, mm -hmm. right? And we we can infer some things. Like I would bet that Dubas envisioned when he acquired Jake Muzzin that the Leafs' four most played defensemen are going to be Riley Gardner, Muzzin, uh, Dermott, or something, or, or at least the top yeah. three would be Riley Gardner, Muzzin. Yeah. Right. Um, and I could buy that. That was something he expected to happen, and that hasn't worked out. And that is, I think, one thing that Babcock does deserve some criticism for. I think he should have, mm -hmm. I don't want to say tried harder, but, like, spent more time. At least, you know, this is all based on what we know. But spent more time trying to figure out how to make those three our three most played guys, you know, with a gap between them and everything, everyone else. Yeah, I was curious about that. Um, just because before the injuries came in and kind of clouded this, I noticed he was doing something where he played Riley Hainsey, um, Muzzin Zaitsev, Gardner Dermott. And I found it interesting that he was playing one Travis Dermott right side and two Travis Dermott with Jake Gardner, who, by the way, is probably his favorite five on five defenseman. Right. We'll, we'll get on to, we'll get yeah. into this more later, but like one of the big problems with the, you know, Dubas progressive, Babcock dinosaur kind of approaches that. Like, Babcock is literally the first coach to appreciate Jake Gardner. Yeah. Who's very like, much like not a dinosaur's type of 
player, right? He, Babcock fucking loves Jake Garner, and you see it in the way he uses him. And I'll get into this more uh, in detail later. But when you look, when you start digging into how Babcock uses his defense, you basically mm-hmm. cannot come away with any other conclusion besides he trusts Morgan Riley and he trusts Jake Garner, and he is okay with Haynes' insights of when we're defending. Yeah. Like, that's very borne out with the way that he does it. And again, I feel like I'm referencing Katya a lot, but I really should because she's done good articles on a lot of this stuff that were kind of narrative busting. And I really recommend uh, taking a look at them. Uh, You can find them on our site at Pension Plan Puppets. But she mentioned the Leafs' top two defensemen are very clearly, or were before the Muslim trade, and probably still are. Still are. Riley and Gardner. Yeah, I think definitively still are. Um, it's clouded a bit by the injury to Gardner, but I think when he gets back, that'll be the case. Um, speaking personally, I do think that if you want to, um, criticize Babcock over something, I think it is clear that he will stick with what he believes works for quite a long time. Very, very strong priors. Exactly. Not infinitely strong. Uh, there was a quote that, uh, Winston Churchill had about America where he says, uh, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they have tried everything else. And I think of that as Babcock. Like, <laughs> it takes him a while to get there, but he did eventually put Leo Komarov on the fourth line last year. You know, he did break up Marlowe and Matthews this year. He still hasn't broken up Riley and Hainsey, and I have to admit that is a source of some disquiet to me. I think it's mostly just based on that pairing continues to outscore its competition. But... I don't want to bet on that. But by and large, I think he does have some capacity to adapt. Yeah. It's just slow. Yeah, the, the riley Hainsey thing is is the most obvious um, flaw that I can find in Babcock's kind of deployment. And, I mean, the, the, the reason why a lot of people, I guess, get annoyed at it is because, like, you look at the pairings and, you know, Gardner doesn't seem like he should. he's going to be the second most played guy because he's always on the second or even with Dermot, the nominee, the third pair. But mm-hmm. his time on ice is always super, super high, right? Oh, yeah. Like, he finds minutes for Gardner. He finds minutes for a Dermot more than his partner. So it's clear he trusts Dermot more than whoever the sixth defenseman is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's very clear that, like, you know, in 5-on-5 in five five ice time, I'm pretty sure that Gardner is, is second on the team. Is that accurate? Let me Let me check. Well, I, I mean, no one is going to be close to him, so it's just a matter of <laughs> whoever else. But, uh, yeah, now, he, I mean, he's been surpa- surpassed in raw ice time, obviously, because a lot of other... But that's special teams, right? Like, I, special yeah. teams I'm not really concerned about. Like, I mean, I'm concerned about his usage, but, like, uh, what are you going to do there, right? The, the, the special teams are pretty good. I'm not... It's not a huge point of concern for me. No. I, I By and large, I just defer to them at this point. Uh, you know, the power play... Still generates chances. The penalty kill is fun when Mitch Marner does stuff, so whatever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I think it's pretty clear that he he's not the uncomplicated old-school figure that people want to paint him as. And I, I think, honestly, and this is probably what drives me nuts, we've gotten to a point where a certain segment of Leaf Twitter uh, just reads everything he says or does, as a damning indictment. They're like, it's indefensible that anyone would think that we should retain this fucking idiot for more than 10 seconds. You know, like, there's just this attitude of, he's completely past it. He can't be salvaged. And I'm thinking, 
He's imperfect, as all coaches are and are want to be. And if he can't uh, adapt to what this team needs uh, in the Boston series, which is a small sample, but that is kind of what he gets paid for and the, the result scheme of things, he's answerable for that. I'm not saying he's got a contract for life. He doesn't. He's got to deliver. But I think when you have multiple explanations for his behavior, and some of them are he's trying something or he's doing something that kind of makes sense. And then one of them is he's a complete idiot. Don't always pick that one because you can talk yourself into him being the worst coach on the planet if you're so inclined. But I don't think the facts bear that out. Yeah. And and I I did just check. Gardner is quite comfortably the Leafs' second most played defenseman at five on five. Yeah. So, and actually, if you you look at it over, uh, and I just did like a simple average of like average five on five ice time. Um, Mm. Muzzin is actually ahead of Zaitsev and Hainsey as well, by a tiny, mm. a very, very small amount though, and and a lot of that is due to how, with the defense kind of shaken up with uh, Gardner and Dermot gone right now, Muzzin has had to be. Yeah, there have been a lot of shifts going on there, so yeah, it's worth keeping an eye on. But you know, and yeah, anyway, and, and, by and large, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, just to echo what you said, like Babcock has made like obvious mistakes. In this sort of thing, and I think the way he's handled Muzzin, it's not how I would have done. It's not to my liking. Mm-hmm. But like, I think it's a stretch to say that because of that, and because of some comments which can be kind of you know reachily interpreted as shots at Dubas, that this is an untenable you know relationship, and it's going down the tubes, and people are unhappy. I. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's true and maybe people have more information, but based on what is public, I just find it a lack I just find that there's a lack of evidence for that claim. Yeah. I, I would like to, to finish this with one last point. Mike Babcock is not getting fired this summer. Not no. Uh, no. So even if the Leafs get swept, like I think there'll be yeah. pressure on him if that happens, God yeah. forbid. Um I but yeah, I don't think he's almost certainly not getting fired. No, I could see him getting fired at the end of next season. If the team is not perceived to have progressed, um, you know, if they're bowing out in the first round or God forbid missing the playoffs, but his job is safe for now. Uh, He's still the highest paid coach in the NHL and he's got term on his contract. And as much as the Leafs are rich, I don't think they love the idea of lighting like $20 million on fire to pay a coach not to coach. So and $20 million plus whatever they have to pay to the new coach. Yes, although, well, yeah, it's complicated a little bit by the fact of if Mike Babcock gets another job that is rated against his current salary. But the point is, I don't think they're anywhere close to that decision. Um, so, yeah, mostly everybody chill out, I guess, was the whole thing that, uh, yeah. that segment. And look, look uh, maybe we look very stupid for not being concerned about this um, <laughs> in a few months. And, you know, Dubas has a press conference to be like, fuck Babcock in particular. <laughs> I want to be clear that this asshole is responsible for everything that has gone the way I did not plan it. Yeah. Um, so maybe so that's talking... the case, but I don't know. <laughs> I, it, it's just... I, I, I wish some of the reporters here, and here I'm going to sing it out, Elliot Friedman. I wish he would actually mm-hmm. say what the fuck he means. I, I hate to... I understand that this is the business, and there's a lot of source cultivation, and I totally accept that there has to be some of this, but a lot of what he does is trading on the ambiguity of how well-sourced or what how-sourced 
some of his info is. And that's kind of, I guess, how it has to be. But you have to read what he says with a pretty critical eye for, A, if this is sourced, where did it come from? And B, if it's not stated that this is sourced, if this is just treated as speculative, then you kind of can't know. And you have to treat it with the eye of, okay, this may be true, this may even be substantiated, but there's nothing to back it up that I know of. Right, and, and so I listened to Friedman's podcast where he discussed this at length in the opening, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And I actually quoted it heavily in like the PPP kind of slack when we were discussing it. There was just nothing there. It, it was just, you know, I look at these guys and they, they just seem unhappy right now. You know, I, I find it hard to criticize Babcock for some reasons that I'm not going to get into. It's like, well, tell me what the fuck you mean. I, like, you're just saying words at this point. You're, you're just saying like, <laughs> hey, the Leafs haven't done well and it seems like this is a problem. And I, I just don't I just don't understand it. There was nothing there that made me think, oh, he has some information. It was. It just seemed like it was his opinion, and Friedman's opinion is fucking worthless to me. Yeah, I mean, look, the thing about Friedman is that he's an extremely well-connected reporter, but he, you know... It's stupid. Yeah, oh, well, I... <laughs> I, I, I could sense you were struggling with how to put it diplomatically, so I'll just be honest. Yeah. He is not a smart person. He, do, he has no... Okay, I'll, I'll walk that back to an extent. His hockey opinions, when speculating, are not ones that I tend to agree with. And I think they show a clear lack of critical thinking and, you know, um, I guess, you know, reasoning skills. <laughs> I think That's way, more diplomatic. Yeah, I, I get basically a, as a gloss on that. I think what the issue is with Friedman is that he's so sourced in and he exists in this world where he's constantly talking to this guy in this organization and this person in this other organization. And it's like, it's almost like he's like pickled. He's living in this constant swirl. Right. Like it, th th there's complications to a job. I'm being unfair to him by saying that because he has to, as you said, a huge part of his job is cultivating sources and maintaining them. And he has to, he can't piss them off. And a, a way to not piss them off is to, you know, kind of just repeat what is being said and not really, you know, ruffle feathers as much as possible. Yeah, and so he's he's very good at playing that game. You know, say what you will about him, he is quite connected. He sustained those connections for a very long time. Yes. But even and, and if, Sorry, just to yeah. interject here. Like, if Friedman reports something, I have 100% confidence that it is true. He is an excellent reporter. Yeah. He is he very, is. very trustworthy in that sense. Yeah, and, and he deserves credit for that. But when you live in that world where you get four or five guys telling you as their opinion the same thing or similar things about what they think is going on in Toronto, when your whole career, when your whole expertise is your ability to manage sources, you are going to tend to believe that. You know, he's not used to applying um, like really fierce analytic goggles to chatter. You know what I mean? He mostly reproduces the chatter. He, his idea as a reporter is, when I hear something, I'm going to call someone and follow up. I'm going to see what people are saying. But the result is that he is a good reporter. He is not a good analyst. And so when Friedman's reporting and his analysis get mixed together, I think the only sensible attitude is to be skeptical unless he explicitly tells you he has something from someone. I don't think he ever makes up sourcing. No. I would never accuse him of that. He's a professional journalist. But I think... When you're not clear that this is coming from somewhere, 
you have to assume that it's probably his analysis, which I don't trust. And when it's not clear where it's sourced from, you have to think, okay, who could this be and what motive might they have for saying it? So I think that there's probably something going on in the league where a lot of people are speculating about Toronto. I'm sure some franchises are hoping that Toronto is imploding. Right, and that's how but, that's how the 31 Thoughts piece starts, right? With like people asking yeah. him, like, hey, do you know, like, what's going on here? Yeah. The bottom line is, I think that, you know, we can point to some disagreements and nothing more. I don't think that there's anything in evidence where we can say this rift really exists or is really destroying the franchise. And so. notably on this, I'd say the two most reliable people who I trust on the Leafs, not just in terms of what they report, but in terms of how they talk about them, are Bob McKenzie and Chris Johnson. Mm-hmm. Neither of them have said anything about this. Yeah, and so I, I, I would sort of keep our powder dry on that. We did briefly, and I'm just going to do this quickly because I know I have like a weakness for doing this, but it's too good to resist. Uh, we get some good examples of organizational dysfunction that helpfully bubble up in the NHL media. And so we had two of them this week in two of our favorite topics here at Back to Excited, the Ottawa Senators and the Edmonton Oilers. And so I'm just briefly going to do that before we go back. It's to gotten to the point where Fulman and I have to have discussions beforehand where it's like, do we really, should we talk about them again? <laughs> like, I know they did another newsworthy thing, but it's, I, <laughs> <laughs> these organizations are such clown shows. It's Honestly, I think that it's worth now and then looking at the whole reign of Eugene Melnick because if it weren't in the NHL and if it weren't uh, Ottawa, which is a smaller market, I really think that this would be one of the greatest stories of sports dysfunction that North American sports has ever seen. Like, I really believe that. Like, just the little details of the craziness. Like, we've talked about the Uber driver thing. Or Ukrainian hackers taking down Travis Yost's blog. Or uh, the weird Between Two Ferns interview that he did with a sixth defenseman on his own team to start the season. I can't, I can't wait till um, Babcock, or sorry, till Dubas fires Babcock and then does the same thing with Justin Hall. <laughs> but and the, but the, both of them can like commiserate about how much they secretly hated him. Yeah. Like the whole time. Yeah, so I think I've mentioned this before, but the really defining feature of Eugene Melnick's reign over the Ottawa Senators is that he thinks that every problem requires more Eugene Melnick. And this is the funniest impulse because every problem is Eugene Melnick. He is the problem with that franchise. And so his solutions are inevitably going to compound things. So he decided to go on Toronto radio, which first of all, that's a fascinating choice. Wait, this was on Toronto radio? I didn't even know that. I thought it was... Oh, yeah. I thought it was Ottawa radio. (laughs) Yeah, and so right there, okay... Uh, That's a fascinating choice because the people who are bankrolling his loans are in Toronto, but his fan base is in Ottawa and lose Toronto. But okay, Uh, let's go ahead with that. First of all, he, I mean, he took a shot at the Leafs and a lot of people are dunking on him for that, for saying that, you know, the the Leafs basically forgot about defense and that's why their rebuild is not going to work and they're not going to succeed. Honestly, this is like the epitome of glass houses and throwing stones when you traded Eric Carlson and then look at that defense now. He doesn't even have a stone to throw. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there we go. Oh, that's true. I didn't even... Oh, man. I need to take a moment. Okay. Anyway, so the defense there is awful. But you know what? From a rational actor perspective, 
I actually think if Eugene Melnick were trying to get the Sens, Sens fan base back on his side, it makes a lot of sense to take shots at Toronto because they all hate us. So <laughs> that, that actually made a certain amount of sense to me. And then what he did was he went on and he said, the people who are complaining are like 12-year-olds in Toronto. They're not real fans. If there is an Ottawa Senators fan who is awake, who is not under general anesthetic, who is not in a coma that snapped in right as they were in the third round a couple years back, there's no Ottawa Senators fan of any description who can be happy with how things have gone for them. It's been a disaster for two years. And a lot of it has been really short-sighted, poor decision-making. That is indisputable. And so by coming in and saying... It's all fake fans who are criticizing us. You're really saying all of you are fake fans. You're not real. You're not devoted. Um, I can't really think of anything better calculated to instill a sense of apathy and defeatism and indifference in the few people that still care about your franchise that you've run into the ground. Like, that was really stupid. Um, and then he also took a shot at Ian Mendez, who is a reporter with TSN on the Sens. Uh, Ian Mendes is, by all accounts, a very nice, generous guy who in the past has been criticized for being too kind towards the Sens organization, while, again, they were a tire fire. But he was interviewing Pierre Dorian, and Mendes wanted to play a clip of a disgruntled fan to ask Dorian his opinion, and Dorian was like, no. And Melnick said that was Bush League on Mendes's part. Um... Mendes was trying to ask the GM about fan disgruntlement and Dorian was saying this stuff like real fans aren't that upset. And Mendes was like, well, actually I have a clip here. And Dorian was like, no, I don't want to hear it. It's incredible to me that they think this is how you manage the media. Like, I really don't know who they think is left that's in their corner at this point. It's hard to really understand anything that's going on in the Sens organization as being progress, as being even good PR. Like, they can't even put lipstick on a pig at this point without imploding. And so, I guess all I can say is I'm really, really grateful that we don't have an owner at all like Eugene Melnick. Babcock said the same thing. Because, of course, yeah. you know, the media t takes these quotes and runs back to the Leafs with them, as they should, because, you know, it's yeah. newsworthy. Morgan Riley. Basically, says that's funny. I'm not going to say anything more, but that's humorous. <laughs> Which like, oh. you, you can picture the Morgan Riley eye roll in your head right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Babcock just says, "You know, we have a really glad, really good owner, Larry Tannenbaum. I'm glad we have him." Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. We're saying this internally. Like, if you want to um, to look at is Babcock being shady and sort of. Uh, taking a swipe at someone that's taking a swipe at someone there is no doubt that he's doing something there. and he had it with the perfect babcock delivery where he's like i think we got a really good owner how's that and like you can tell he's got like the the little smirk on his face as he says it anyway that's just a check-in on our friends the senators who let's remember do not have their own first round pick this year so keep an eye on that as the draft lottery comes up the edmonton oilers um Gosh, what do you even say? But they finally fired Peter Chiarelli earlier this year. And Peter Chiarelli was as bad a general manager as I've seen in some time. Like, I think you can say fairly that he was worse than Dave Nonis with the Leafs in terms of what he had and what he squandered in the time that he ran the team. But he's gone now. 
Bob Nicholson, who is their president of Hockey Ops, um, gave a speech to season ticket holders. And if there were ever a clearer sign of evidence that the problem was not just Peter Chiarelli, but the whole culture, I don't know what it is, because Bob Nicholson gave a speech to the season ticket holders where he basically blamed the team's failure to make the playoffs on Toby Reeder having a shooting percentage slump. He didn't say it in those words because I'm not sure he gets that as a concept, but he just reamed Toby Reeder. Toby Reeder is like a depth forward that they signed for like a year and a couple million. And yeah, he's having a bad year. Normally he scores 12, 13 goals and now he's scoring zero. But he just lit into this guy. And it's like, do you really think that this ninth forward or whatever was the thing that was holding your team back? Like, I don't understand how you can look at this, do a diagnosis and say, basically it was Toby Reader's fault. Like it wasn't Milan Lucic. It wasn't our hideous state of our defense. It wasn't that we have no real scoring wingers, which even on his good days in his good years, Toby Reader was not. Uh, but he was just like, we're not resigning that guy again, which is another thing because purportedly they're still in the GM hunt and Bob Nicholson is not going to be the GM. So then you get thinking, if the new GM wants to resign Toby Reader for like the league minimum to say, I think he's going to rebound because he's not going to shoot 0% forever. Now his hands are kind of tied. Like everything about it was just a perfect kind of hint that there's still that whole culture in Edmonton that has not left with Peter Chiarelli. And it's really going to be interesting to see if the new GM has a free hand because if he doesn't, I don't see how this gets better. And it's so. it's kind of stupid for two reasons. Well, more than that, <coughs> but there, there's a couple ways to look at this. The first is that you're criticizing Reader for, you know, his lack of goals. And really, it, it's just his shooting percentage. His shooting percentage is, is truly, truly awful. And certainly, he bears, Reader bears some blame for that. But it's emblematic of the fact that Nicholson doesn't understand that shooting percentage is highly variable and that, you know, Things like this happen, and when they do, it's, you know, not just a fault of the player. A lot of it is variance, right? So mm. problem A is that he doesn't seem to recognize that this is a shooting percentage slump as opposed to, like, an overall, you know, player slump. And if you look at Reader's numbers otherwise, they're pretty similar. Like, his underlying numbers are pretty similar to uh, what he's done in years past. Now, the second problem is that he blames Reader for this and says, you know, if Reader has 15, 16 goals, he, we're probably in the playoffs. And it's like, well, you know, that that's another issue because, you know, one depth player improving doesn't immediately mean like, oh, yeah, well, now we're a playoff team. Or, and, and even yeah. if you are a playoff team, you are a wildcard team who is going to get your ass kicked by, I don't know, by Calgary or by um, San Jose or... Actually, not San Jose because they're facing Vegas by like Winnipeg or something like that. It doesn't mean it, those goals don't take you from being bad to now a contender. Mm -hmm. And then the third reason this is stupid is even if you think these first two stupid thoughts, why are you saying them? Why are you saying them publicly? Why are you yeah. putting your player on blast to season ticket holders? You know that's going to get out. Yeah, like what makes you think that... How does that make you look as an organization? It makes you look stupid it makes you look like a you made a bad decision in, in signing reader which on him or acquiring him maybe you did but you know that seemed like a defensible signing at the time b it makes you seem 
actually, in the unironic use of this term, classless. You're kicking a guy when he's down. He's gone in three yeah. months. Just let him go. You don't have. Yeah, you don't there's have to, nothing like, you have to do. You here. don't have to like you know be a dick to him. No, if you know, and if you're a free agent and you're already thinking of all the charms that that Edmonton has to offer you, are you thinking, well, at least there's a culture where if things go against me, they're gonna shit on me, you know, <laughs> to the press. And Toby Reader, when they asked him about it, he was like, well, I didn't think that was great. Like you could tell he was kind of like fuck off, and that's how I would feel about it. But you know, he tried to be polite. I would just like to note it, note as a final thing. The Oilers have an actually very narrowly above average shooting percentage this year. Like they're 14th in the league. And, and, it's and part like, of that can be expected because you have Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Yeah. But it's like, if you went through the last few years and you concluded this was really the key thing that was going wrong, that's malpractice in terms of a diagnosis of the franchise. Like, I really think that Daryl Cates, as the owner of the Oilers, has to now be thinking, or should now be thinking, although apparently he's not, I should fire Bob Nicholson. Like, you really got to fire a lot of these guys um, if you're going to progress. But that doesn't seem to be happening, so stay tuned. I guess we're going to find out if the new GM really gets a chance to fix things there, because a lot of this evidence suggests that the problems are so deep-seated and so ingrained that he might not. So... We were going to talk about the Leafs also. Yeah, uh, we're like we're almost an Leafs. hour in. This is going to be this is going to be a long <laughs> podcast. We're not going to spit this one up. I think we'll just, you know, make it a long one. Let, let's roll. It's a marathon. Um yeah, so we uh did a segment earlier in the season about real or fake. It was almost it, um, I guess it would have been pretty much exactly 4 months ago cuz that was episode 39, right? Oh no, more more oh. than I can't do math, sorry. It was a while ago. It was like 20 <laughs> yeah. games into the season. Yeah, it was early, around um, the quarter mark of, uh, <laughs> if I say quarter bowl catch, is going to kill me. But uh, around 25% of the way into the season or so, we looked at certain trends that were prevalent around the Leafs. And we said, is this real or is this fake? Is this going to continue? Is it sustainable? Or is this just a blip? And so we thought that it would be fun and or honest to check back on ourselves and say, were we right about this? So real or fake? Um, the very first of our real reels or fakes was Casperi Kapanen is a first line winger. I believe we both said that that was we real. We both said that was real. And I guess, <clears throat> sorry, uh, how did, how do you still, how do you feel about that now? Pretty good. I might've been a little too high on him, but he's pretty close. I think, I think we both were like, I listened to it back yesterday and mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I would still, if I was asked to classify this as real or fake, I would still say real. I think it's probably fairer to say that Kapanen is a fringe first-liner, right? Yeah. And, like, the difference between a high-end second-liner and a low-end first-liner, if you're going to, you know, make some kind of claim about the distinction between those players, it's not enormous. It really isn't. It's, it's, it's quite small. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that Kapanen is in that area. Um, things like RAPM continue to show him to be a strong play driver this year. And, again, you know, I mention this every time we talk about Kapanen, his ability to generate odd-man rushes you know, which are particularly high-quality scoring chances, means that he, he he's more useful than play-driving metrics would, you know, initially count for. Um, right now, he's just outside the top 100 among forwards in terms of scoring, which is just outside being a first-liner by scoring, which is 
fine, you know, fringe first liner. The, the difference there is like literally one more point over the course of the season than he would be like 90th in the league, right? So it's like you don't really mm-hmm. get worked up over those sorts of differences. Um, by shot generation, you know, he's actually a very good shot generation. It's like 40th in the league among forwards in um, in shot rate, and that's always a good sign, especially because he appears to have some finishing talent as well, right? It's, he's, he's not just firing firing blanks into the goalie's chest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess I guess the biggest thing, fixed area of improvement, maybe the lowest hanging fruit for him, is just if he can learn to be like twenty percent better as a passer, it would help a lot because he gets the puck a lot and gets into the opposing zone a lot, and a lot of the time what he does is rip a shot from above the circles, and even if you're an above average shooter, unless you're Patrick Laine, that has a pretty low chance of going in, mm-hmm. right? And also a pretty low chance of creating a rebound because he's often the first guy in because of his speed and because he has the puck and otherwise he'd be offside. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, th- that's what I'd like to see him improve, but he's, he's still quite young. He still can improve that. Yeah. You know, I think uh, Kasperi Kapanen in describing him as like, is he first liner or, or not? I think I stand by our conclusion or basically what we're saying now is fringe first liner, but he seems like he's, spikier in terms of his highs and lows in some ways than some first liners like he's probably a worse passer than most guys around him but his speed is so distinctively great that it really gives him a different profile i think that it makes him a lesser compliment to austin matthews than william nylander is i mean william nylander is better anyway but there's less of a mesh there because cappy is sort of a great one-man band He's capable of just striking in and creating his own shot, as we were saying. But there's less of an integrative skill set there. So, like, if we didn't have a great third-line center in Nazem Kadri, I would still be thinking I kind of want to play Kasperi Kapanen on a line where maybe we don't have as much to work with, just because I think he can do a lot himself, uh, and he can do relatively less compared to some high-end wingers. That's just the the feeling that I get from his overall profile. So we'll see how that develops. Yeah, and I mean, one of the Leafs' kind of paths to contending this year is that that line, Kadri, Kapanen, and Marlowe, becomes like a an excellent line, right? And mm-hmm. I haven't checked the numbers on this, so maybe they're doing better than I thought. But last night, it was very clear how big a drop-off there was between the Tavares line and the Matthews line, kind of who were destroying the rangers all night and then the kadri line which was like eh. yeah kadri i don't think has had his finest year no and a lot of people have attributed that to his you know he's no longer given the quote-unquote matchup role i don't know how much i put into that yeah because i I I believe that it's something but i don't know i mean last year he started succeeding when he got mitch marner on his wing right like that that's when the puck started going in and this year he's again a very low shooting percentage uh, hit a ton of posts, as we know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not entirely convinced that because he no longer has as defined a role that he's struggling for some reason. But you know, I'm not. I'm not discounting it as a possibility. I just don't really see the evidence for it at this point. Yeah, but you know, by and large, I think you know you can feel pretty good about Casper Kapanen's season. Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, he's going to have made himself a decent amount of, of money. Uh, in the offseason, although the Leafs are going to do everything they can to, you know, keep that number as low as possible. Yeah, so I guess we'll find out how that develops. But, 
So our second one was Morgan Riley is the Norris favorite. I think I said this was real and you said this was fake. Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe so. And I mean, at this point, it's very clear he's not the Norris favorite. That's Mark Giordano. Yeah, uh, that's the thing is I think he's going to be a finalist. I think he'll finish top three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say my argument at the time was not he's going to be the best defenseman. Yeah, I think we both I said he was probably he was not yeah. the best defenseman. He's not. By the way, Mark Giordano deserves the award. Like, if I were voting, I would give it to Mark Giordano. Yeah. But um, I did think that, like, maybe his high-end point production would get him uh, to the top of the table. He's not outstripping the field in points the way that he would have to to make up for the fact that I think it's pretty clear that guys like Giordano are better defensively. Like, um, Mark Giordano is legitimately as good a two-way defenseman as exists um, despite his age like he's really really impressive to me Brent Burns is actually the leading defenseman scorer in points but one he already has his Norris so he doesn't get any lifetime achievement bonus but two I don't know man I know that it's an award for points for defensemen but Brent Burns is like he's a forward in disguise in my opinion which is fine but that's what he is so yeah I, I think that Riley will finish top three now, but he's not the favorite. So, oh well. I can live with that. Yeah, I, I largely agree with that. So the next one that I said was that Travis Dermott is the Leafs' second best defenseman. <laughs> and I said that was real, and you said that was not real. Well, guess what? Yeah. I get to be right. You, yeah, <laughs> no, you're 100% right. Um, it has turned out to be not real. And so at the time, Gardner was in his early season doldrums. Mm-hmm. Um. And he has rebounded to have, frankly, just a monster year. And a year that, honestly, might be as impressive as Morgan Riley's. In its own way, yeah. He really, he was turning the Jets on so much. And then, yeah, he got injured. I'm sad now. (laughs) It's been a vintage Gardner year in that he's taken, like, playing with a pretty shitty linemate, you know, (laughs) with Nikita Zaitsev, (laughs) in a role, you know, well above what that linemate can actually do being played mm-hmm. as a second pairing. Like, Gardner isn't really sheltered by any means. He faces, like, pretty average competition across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, so it, it's basically he, he's a second pairing. Play it on a second pairing, more or less. Mm-hmm. And also in very high leverage moments. And that pairing has been above 50% in Corsi and expected goals. Yeah, so, I mean, what more can you no, really No one has him? really done that with, with Zaitsev. No, like he, he's, I don't know what to say at this point. I, I know we were complaining about it before, but just because there have been so many years where I felt like Gardner was really underappreciated. And again, he has his flaws, but it's like, he's really good. I'm sorry. He's a good player. Yeah. So uh, um, according to HockeyViz, their um, threat, which you could think of as like uh, location-weighted shots, uh, Gardner's, when he's on the ice, the Leafs are 19% better on offense than league average. And... worse on defense. So, like, kind of 15% better than average in aggregate. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's really good. (laughs) That's really, really good. And, again, he's playing with Nikita Zaitsev. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he's training with the weights on. Uh, You know, look, someone was actually asking me earlier this week, do they think Gardner's injury makes it more realistic that he wants to stay or that we're able to retain him at a salary that we can afford? I say it probably doesn't have that much of an impact. I honestly think like maybe it makes people a little leerier, but 
He's been productive. He's been a successful defenseman. I think that there's going to be at least a couple GMs who are going to prize his ability to move the puck and who will pay for it more than we can afford. Yeah. So unless he's willing to take a discount, I still think he's gone, which really sucks. Which really, really, really sucks because, you know, he's super important to us. As we said before, he is Mike Babcock's second defenseman, right? The least yeah. top two defensemen play on different pairs, basically. And an interesting thing to look at, and this will relate to why, you know, Dermot hasn't really shined as brightly as maybe I would have hoped 20 games in. But Gardner's usage, when, so when the Leafs are within one, when the game is within one, Gardner and Riley are like an order of magnitude more used than almost any other Leafs uh, player, right? Like, like yeah. when, when the game is tied, Riley and Jake are top two. And then mm-hmm. when the Leafs move up one, Gardner um, and Zaitsev move up a bit and Riley moves down a little bit. And part of that is Babcock um, kind of just trying to balance out the time on ice. When the Leafs are down one, Riley and Gardner just kind of, it's the Riley and Gardner show. Yeah. Like, it's, it's their time to make a difference, and they go for it. And interestingly, when you look at Dermot and his usage by score, he, when, when the game is, like, basically close or competitive, he is used like a 5D. Mm-hmm. And when we are down a lot or up a lot, he is our most used defenseman. Yeah. Like, he's the guy who you lean on heavily when the game doesn't matter that much, because the truth is, Mike Babcock doesn't quite trust him yet in the Gardner role, in the Dermot role. And it's worth noting, Tyler Dello has talked about this. Mike Babcock is very big on he picks one pair to get a lot of hard minutes, and he'll often really, really keep his third pair away from top lines on other teams. I know that the quality of competition wars are still kind of not resolved, but I think it's kind of significant that Travis Dermot does not play almost ever against top lines when Mike Babcock has control over it. He still obviously gets some time against them. But all of this suggests to me, one, he's still functioning as a good third-pairing defenseman right now, but he hasn't surpassed Jake Gardner in any way, in my opinion. We may need him to next year, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I think, I think we're almost forced. He's going to be forced into that role next year, and this is another thing I do quibble with Babcock on. It's like, he needs to try things before they are forced upon him. Yes, I think that that's the best objection to Babcock, honestly. Um, you know, and like a lot of coaches, when your job security is determined by wins and losses, by goals for and against, in a simpler sense, you're going to try and rely on what works because you're trying to win the next game right in front of you. And so it can be harder to have that kind of macro vision of what do I want to be doing in 12 months? Um, it's probably a little easier for Babcock than some coaches because he's had job security. And I think he's done some things trying to develop players longer term. But the reality is Riley Hainsey is a pairing, I think, because they don't get outscored. And Dermot hasn't quite got his full confidence yet. So, yeah, I guess that's where we're at right now. Yeah. So, Gardner, just an unbelievably strong season from him. He leads uh, the Leafs in, among defensemen in RAPM for, uh, I think, both Corsi and XG. If not, he's, he's mm-hmm. near the top. He's near the top league-wide in both of those. He's had a, a really, really profound impact on moving the puck in the right direction at five on five. And that's after you account for his teammates, his competition and things like that. Right. Uh, And again, Gardner isn't facing sheltered competition, right? That's not, you can't really use that as a slight against him. And maybe you could say he's not facing super tough competition the way Morgan Riley does, but also his Mm -hmm. honest numbers are, you know, 
immeasurably better than Riley's. And Mm -hmm. I I think it's reasonable to feel that, you know, Gardner's results are, would would probably be around the same or maybe better than Riley's in, in the same situation. And, you know, that wouldn't shock me if it was the case. And this isn't a shot at Riley, who I think is legitimately excellent and has blossomed into, in my opinion, a a, a bona fide, you know, number one defenseman, like a, a, a solid number one defenseman, mm-hmm. right? But um, Gardner, when it comes to moving play at even strength, in his career, he's always been amazing at it. And this year has been an absolutely vintage Jake Gardner year. Yeah. So I hope we get him back for the playoffs because that does a lot for our chances. We need That's him. We need him. Say. We need him. Um, yeah, so the next one, Frederick Anderson is the Vesna favorite. Uh, I got to take the L on this one. I said it was real. I think you said it was fake. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. If it was not for that, you know, bad week, you know, a week and a half ago or two weeks ago, he still might be. I might have. He, he's still among the league so lead in goal saved above expectation. Yeah. Uh, he, like, and to be fair, I have to acknowledge my argument for him was kind of based on the structure of the award. I said he was going to get get credit for playing behind a team that is perceived as defensively weak. And I thought John Gibson, I mean, John Gibson's numbers have kind of wilted a little bit anyway under the onslaught that he suffered. But I thought that John Gibson wouldn't get enough credit because his team was so bad. And so a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, he was, I think, looking like the favorite, like maybe around the 60 game mark or so. But yeah, that's... I mean, he had one really, really awful week, which can happen to anybody, but it's going to be enough that his numbers now have fallen back to the pack pretty considerably. So I don't think he's going to win. I think but. he could make top three. He could, yeah. It's hard to know um, because, you know, a lot of the guys who who lead in these statistics have not played all that much um, or have played like kind of half seasons and the voters are often reluctant to reward those fully. I still don't know what they're going to do with Vasilevsky, who's been really, really good, but he plays for a juggernaut. So, I don't know how that's going to affect them. But, uh, yeah, the fact remains Freddy's, like, integral to our hopes of success. So, <laughs> you know, he's the Vesna in my heart, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, pending how the last nine games or so go for him, but he has a real shot at, like, if he has a few good games, and he had a good game against the Rangers, um, mm-hmm. he could very easily get right back into that conversation. He, he's near the top of the league, and... You know, I think I was remarking on this to to you yesterday that you know since we've had Freddie, I've I've forgotten the year the yearly coin flip of like okay, well, hope our goalie's good this year. Yeah. Oh man, that was like such an agonizing series of years. Even when like, I mean, one there was just our goalies are going to be awful, and there's nothing we can do about it, and it's going to sewer us, which is what happened with like Vesa Toscala. Um, but then we had like the the Reimer and the Bernier debate that was constantly like, oh, well, some of us love him. Some of us love the other guy. Both of them are flawed. And it's like, it's so nice not to have that. It's just exhausting. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, anyway, I don't think he's going to win it. Um, but y- you never know. Um, Frederick Goche is competent. I don't know. Did we both say real <laughs> on this? I think we did. Uh, I think we both. I think we were kind of like sort of. I think we were. We were. Like, we were like really, you know, hedging our opinion with like he has not looked terrible this year, and yeah. yeah so I remarked on this yesterday. Yesterday, Gote played his 100th game, and I joked that he is halfway to being officially a successful draft pick, because a lot yeah. of these, you know, this is a kind of a nerd joke, but 
a lot of these draft pick models to assess, you know, what's the value of a draft pick. They use a benchmark of if a draft draft pick plays 200 games in the NHL, so it's like they had an actual NHL career, then there's a, a successful draft pick. So Gauthier's yeah. halfway there. Would and this will be it'll be hilariously funny if he gets there all for the Leafs because of how much shit the pick took from people like me included. Like I did not like that pick. Oh yeah. And I I mean I still don't, but you know he's you know kind of carving his carving out an NHL career. Yeah, he's doing it, and you know good for him. I will say like he's not a good NHL. No, player. no. Like, I, I think we can all agree like he's. He's very fringe, bottom of the roster kind of guy. And I, I, again, this is another Katya stat, but like among regular NHLers, people, I don't think there's people or there's not many people who are trusted less than Gautier by their coach. Oh yeah, it's always like we gotta really feather the bed for him. Yeah, or it's not gonna work out. So yeah, you know he he's not great. But that said, I I do feel kind of owned by the fact that for the longest time I was like I don't think this guy is any brand of NHLer. And so him just being kind of a fringy, but still getting in the lineup a lot, NHLer, is him wildly exceeding my expectations. So he's passable. Yeah. You can play him and he doesn't, like, totally sewer your team. Yeah, I mean, he, he's, so. not, he's not good. By, he's like a very no. traditional slow-it-down fourth-liner. Like, not much happens for either team when he's on the ice, but less happens for the Leafs than the other team. But that's kind of what you expect out of a fourth-liner, right? So... Yeah. So. If it was up to me, I'd I'd rather just go with like more Patan Ennis or more Patan Brown or yeah. something, mm-hmm. or Ennis Patan Brown like like just uh, something with Gote not in the lineup because I have more faith that Nick Patan could be something, and maybe we'll yeah. see that next year. But yeah, it's <laughs> Gote has exceeded our very low expectations of him by yeah, being so. not awful. And I that I mean that more sincerely than that sounds. Like he has, you know, obviously worked very hard to get to the point where he's gonna carve out an NHL career. And in part, that's yeah. because he is ginormous and was a first round draft pick, and he was given chances that mm-hmm. other people weren't. But you play the card you're dealt. Yeah, and the truth is, is that there would have been a point where I think that if he had been coasting on it, his career would have fizzled out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there was a point where he looked like he was plateauing as, like, an okay-ish defensive third-line center in the AHL. And he's pushed beyond that. And that is to his credit. So, you know what? You've owned us, Gauthier. You win. And, and to be clear, <laughs> a lot of this is helped by the fact that I'm pretty sure his, his PDO is, like, relatively high. Oh, God, Right? Like, yeah. no, nothing I, I mean, kills a fourth-liner's career faster than a bad PDO. Yeah, yeah, it's... And, you know, it is depressing when you see it the other and way. A bad on-ice save um, percentage, specifically. Because you can get away yeah. with, like, fourth-liners will have bad PDO because they're they're bad shooters, generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're getting, like, scored on a lot, it's, you're never going to succeed as a fourth-liner. You're, you're just, there, there'll be, um, your coach is going to get sick of you. Yeah. Even if it's not your so fault. He's, yeah, he's fourth on the team in PDO behind uh, Lindholm, who is now departed. Riley and... Yeah, and I'm guessing most of that is safe percentage because it's not like Freddie Gauthier has elite shooting. (laughs) Driving the offense. Um, I'd like to note the worst PDO on the team is Nick Patan. So, I don't know how that's played into things. But uh, anyway, good for you. Uh, So the last one, and I think the most fun one. Buffalo will be top three in the division. And we were both like, no. Now that said, we were like, no, that's not going to continue. 
But we were like, as long as they basically hold it together, they're going to make the playoffs. And Buffalo has imploded. Oh, my God. They were officially eliminated last night. Yeah. Like, by a lot, too. Yeah. Like, they're behind Florida in the division now. Um, Much less behind Tampa, Boston, Toronto, Montreal. Um, Wow. I, I... Honestly, I'm kind of staggered at how bad the second half of their season has been because Buffalo has had some really atrocious years. Like, they iced the worst team of the salary cap era when they were tanking for Mick Eichel. And this second half of the year has been almost as if they were honoring the memory of that god-awful team because they just absolutely threw away uh, any hope that they had. So, like, they'll be lucky to to hit 80 points which is actually what I originally predicted for them. And then I was like, no, they've banked so many points. They're probably going to finish better than that. But wow. Anyway, I don't have a lot to say other than like, it's kind of funny. <laughs> it is. At one point they were the, like at, a, at one point, somewhat deep into the season, they were the best team in the league by points. Yeah. They won like 10 games in a row. Mm-hmm. And right at the pinnacle of that, like a, there was a lot of crowing and they were like, Eichel is better than Matthews and yada, yada, yada. And, wow, that turned around. They have won one game in their last 10. Like, and that was, like, the, the 10 games started when they might have still had pretensions to being in the playoff race. Although, really, it was kind of a pipe dream even then. But it's not happening now. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it's really clear that Buffalo is a one-line team. And their hope of having a second line departed when they made the Ryan O'Reilly trade, which I firmly believe is going to go down as one of the worst trades. Hey, they had to make years. room for Casey Middlestat. Oh, yeah. Casey Middling stats. And, you know, to say this in tribute to the poor kid, it's not his fault that he was wildly overhyped. And it's not his fault that the Sabres apparently thought that he was going to come in and be their second line center right out of the gate. But he was really, really, really overrated. Yeah. And it's also... um. To make this about the Leafs, like it, it's kind of notable the difference between what the Leafs did with William Nylander and what the mm-hmm. Sabers did with Middlestat. Yeah, right. Where like there was a real developmental process. Yeah, and you know Nylander, uh, he actually played center in his first twenty-two game like stint with the Leafs at the end of the tank year, and Bab- but Babcock said like, yeah, you know, we don't really want to have to play him at center, and he gave him Parento and Hyman, who are the two most responsible wingers on the team, which says a lot about the team. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he they were very much trying to insulate Nylander. They And they explicitly said, like, yeah, we don't want to have to rely on him when he's, like, a 19-year-old. Or, yeah. you know, right now. Right? And then th- when the next year came around, they put him at wing with Matthews. And Matthews and Eichel and McDavid, those, those types of players are special enough that you can put them at center day one and more or less be fine. Mm-hmm. Middlestad isn't that guy. Yeah. And... You know, it's really again. It's not on him not to be that he's not that guy. It's on the it's team on for the not... people who thought he was. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, we were mostly right about that, and insofar as we were wrong, it was that we gave the Buffalo Sabers too much credit, which I assure you is not a mistake I intend to make ever again. Yeah. So. And then the <laughs> the other thing is, you said they're a one line team, and that's partially because I think they're, that one line is like Skinner, Eichel, Reinhardt, right? And yep. all the smart Sabres fans I know are like, put Reinhardt on another line. Because he can, he's, uh, Reinhardt's actually sneakily a very good play driver. Mm-hmm. 
so he can drive that other line. And then if you put like Palmenville where Reinhardt is, that line's actually been just as good. So now you have like a two line team, but Housley just hasn't done it for whatever reason. And Sabres fans are like mad at Housley from what I've seen. Uh, granted, I think any fan base would be mad at any coach after they go half a season on a 60 point pace. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I honestly, I picked uh, Housley as first coach fired. Um, so last year, and so obviously I was wrong about that, but I kind of still believe that, like, if it weren't for that fluky 10-game win streak, I might have been right. Like, that probably preserved his job to the end of this season at least. But it has not gone well uh, down there in Buffalo. It has not gone well at all. So, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, very fun. <laughs> all right, so our last segment of this uh, bit of a monster episode is kind of a bit of a retrospective of the Leafs and it, it's what what have we learned this year right and this can be very broad this can be, what have we learned about the Leafs what have we learned about hockey what have we learned about our own biases maybe and how we see the game mm-hmm. um or are we just perfect yeah I like to think that we're perfect. yeah I think this yeah segment over what's good we didn't make any mistakes everybody go home <laughs> but <laughs> yeah no and I think it is important to do this every now and then as much as you know, we can crow about, like, trying to see deeper in the game. Part of that process involves admitting when you were wrong about some stuff. And side note, and, this, you know, this is why we always, like, get super pissed off at Brian Burke. Because he has, like, no—or at least has not said anything of, like, yeah, that was a mistake. Yeah. And, you know, it would be a lot more palatable to me, his, like, I'm the tough old hockey man routine— if he just owned, you know, I'm the tough old hockey man, but I've made mistakes. And I would actually like him a lot better, and I would find it easier to acknowledge, because the truth is, he did some good things, yeah. too. But, and no. he absolutely anyway. has, like, knowledge to share, right? Like, I'm not I'm yeah, not so egotistical yeah. to think that I would be a better general manager than Brian Burke. I would not be. I would be a mess as a GM. Oh, God, yeah. There are, like, a hundred things that come from just professional knowledge of the job that you just kind of have to do. That we wouldn't know from the outside. We just wouldn't. And so, just that knowledge base even by itself probably puts an incompetent GM ahead of us. I think we could do better than Peter Chiarelli, though, because we would not actively destroy our franchise. Like, I I would sit on my hands probably most of the time, and that would help. Yeah. But, anyway. I'd probably just, like, keep, like, texting Nylander and say, hey, want to hang out, man? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, man. Let's go to the movies. Yeah, but, uh... Yeah, so we're going to look at some of the stuff that we have learned. So do you want to go first, or do I have to sure. um, jump on the ground? Yeah, so the first thing I learned, hard-hitting analysis. John Tavares is very good. Yes. Uh, I mean, that is mo- that is mostly as we expected, but like it's like when you see him up close, you really... Wow. He's really, really he, good. He, yeah, side- he's, just a, he's a phenomenal player. And, of course, like we knew that going in, but... It bears repeating that this could have been tailor-made for Tavares to be a disappointment. There were huge expectations. You know, he is the savior now. He's the Toronto guy. He's the first free agent to, first huge free agent to really, mm-hmm. you know, take a stand and go move teams in, 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 a, in a while since, like, Zidane Chara, basically. Um, so things could have gone bad. Like, the Islanders are doing well without him. And it's a testament to how brilliant Tavares has been that universally he has like 100% approval in Toronto. He is he's oh, been yeah. the least best player this year. Could run for mayor and win in the landslide. Yes. Like he's beloved. And you know what? 
his totals have been, you know, this is simple because he's never had a, a line made as good as Mitch Marner. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's already got a career high in goals. He's a decent threat to get a career high in points. He would have to get five points in his last seven games, which doesn't seem out of the question. And he's just been really, really good playing in some tough situations. I mean, we've talked about Mitch Marner's development. Mitch Marner has taken a step. I think that's clear. But those insane point totals that Mitch Marner has, a lot of that is just he gets to play with John goddamn Tavares. Right. It's very much a symbiotic thing. They both make each other better, and that's what makes it a fruitful partnership. And, you know, that line has been good for the Leafs. Very good. They they face tough competition, and they are succeeding in it. Mm-hmm. what more can you ask for from from Tavares he's been everything we wanted and more and you know he's held up his end of the bargain for year one without yeah, a shadow I, of a doubt I, I just want to see him and Marner as a pairing for you know for years to come and I think we will and I think that that's a really really nice thing that we can maybe lose sight of sometimes in the in the grind of the season so yeah he, he is insofar as we were off on that I, I might have even hedged a little bit too much in how good I expected him to be. So, yeah. Um, so, something that I've learned, and this is going to sound like I'm setting this up to actually say, well, I was actually kind of right, but I'm not. Um, I was leery of Garrett Sparks to some extent because there were a lot of people, frankly, yelling at me on Twitter over the summer about, like, he's the best AHL goalie, and how dare you doubt this. But I thought he would be a good backup, and I overrated him, honestly. I think that, like, right now he's performing like a kind of a mediocre to low-end backup. He's still playable in the NHL. It's fine. And in the end, what you want out of your backup goalie is don't lose too many games. You know, I know that I'm reviving goalie wins as a stat there, so please God forgive me. But the reality is, if you're not giving away too many points in games where your backup plays... You don't feel too bad about it, but he really just has not been that great. And maybe it's just a lesson in terms of that thing that we all kind of know, which is that goalies are bloody hard to predict. Like, I don't know who's going to take the stride year to year. They're all subject to a ton of variance, and (laughs) it's very hard to really guess anything. So I'm probably just going to retreat even farther into the goalies or voodoo thing which is going to be fun when I try to rank Ian Scott and Joseph Wall as prospects this summer. But, yeah, I just, I thought that he would be better than this. Um, and, you know, I was warned a little bit by our Marley's watches. They're like, he's pretty wild. Like, he relies on athleticism. But, uh, yeah, he's not been that great. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, you always have to be careful reading into what amounts to, like, what? 15, 20 starts or something. Not a huge yeah. amount of time for a goalie, right? I mean, goalies can have completely anomalous seasons or couples of seasons, right? 20 games, it's hard to definitively say what Sparks is, but he's not giving us evidence that he is, you know, a future NHL starter or even an above-average backup yet. Yeah, it just it hasn't been there. Maybe it will be, but not yet. Exactly. So, yeah. So the other thing that we've learned, and I think this is a bit more clear, is that Matthews is an incomplete puzzle. Right? Yeah. And there's parts of his game that are kind of severely lacking. And actually, you know, one of the most encouraging things about the last few games is that is how good Matthews has been and how good his line has been with Nylander and Janssen at controlling the play. 
and controlling chances. Mm-hmm. And Matthews, in particular, has been a man on a mission. And in particular, his ability to pilfer pucks has always been amazing. He's always been a takeaway thief or a takeaway artist, right? But, mm-hmm. he, you know, he's doing it more and he's converting that more into chances over the last few games. And I can only hope that it's a sign of things to come because, mm-hmm. you know, he, you know, the, his 200-foot his play has deservedly been criticized this year. He's not good defensively. And I, I still think in his own zone, he's spacey. He very clearly is just thinking, God damn it, I want to play offense. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a huge part of his development going forward. And I, I, I'm sure he's going to improve. He is still so young. And he is important. He's good at the most important thing in the world in hockey. Yeah. Right? Which is shooting and scoring. He is mm-hmm. the best in the world at that. Yeah. So he, he's going to be a great player. He already is. As he rounds out and, you know, kind of addresses the areas where he's weak, it's going to make him that much better. And I, and I hope, you know, this last little bit of time where he's been dominating shots and dominating course and dominating expected goals is a sign of things to come. And hopefully, I mean, that partnership with Nylander, we know how good that can be. That's mm-hmm. something we'll see hopefully for the next decade, decade plus. Yeah, just glue them together as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and I mean, so. it, it became clear that Matthews re- couldn't elevate... Um, I guess certain types of, of line mates, right? He, he really struggled in every capacity with uh, Marlowe on his wing. Mm-hmm. As soon as he got Kapanen and Janssen, you know, that group as a whole, they had some kind of turbulent times, but on the whole, they had good numbers and good results. And then with Nylander, you know, we're seeing the same thing. So if you give him, if you give him transition players, he, he's going to bring the thunder, right? And yeah. he's going to do exactly what we want him to and and that's good to see and hopefully he can continue to accentuate you know the parts of his game to complement those transition players even more and you know work even more in the defensive zone um because that that's really the the missing part of his game right now so yeah yeah that that that's one thing that's been made very clear and i think that's part of what made the contract that he signed somewhat frustrating because he, he got paid as if he is a complete player in some sense yeah and you know he's great he's so good um, and but yeah, I, I do think that he got played, paid as if he's the second best player in the world, and I want him to be that. <laughs> so let's hope he can continue to become that. Uh, something that I probably have to own here, and this is a little tricky. I still think William Nylander is really underrated in the popular imagination right now. I think that he's not getting the credit he deserves because he had the contract dispute and then he had six weeks where he just clearly was not up to speed. Um, since then, he's been really, really good, I think. Um, I think there are some some issues about him. I don't want to step on your toes because you have a piece coming up, I know, on William Nylander's shooting. So I will just note that um, his shooting has not done him a lot of credit to the extent that you would think with a guy with a shot like his. But I ranked Nylander above Mitch Marner last year in the summer just because I value Nylander's play in transition so much and there are so many things that he does so well. And I think those strengths have been validated. And I think Mitch Marner's point totals are a bit inflated by John Tavares. But like the fact remains, Mitch Marner has taken a huge step this year, in my opinion. I think Mitch Marner on the penalty kill is like increasingly one of my favorite things to watch. Like I'm... Still not happy when we take a penalty, but I'm like, at least Mitch Marner might like gut the opposing defense and dance through them. Um, He's really shown that he is almost as good a playmaker as there is 
you know, he's in that top tier, you know, behind Nikita Kucherov and Connor McDavid and that, but like not many others. Um, and so I wasn't ever trying to underrate that. It's just, I value Nylander's game so much, but Mitch Marner has really shown that his strengths are so strong that he's kind of undeniable now. Um, I still think Austin Matthews is like the best of the, the big three. I think that's pretty clear. John Tavares has actually been the best player on the Leafs this season, in my opinion. But Mitch Marner is like a really, really key core piece. And so, mea culpa on that one. Yeah. I recognize the greatness. Yeah, Marner's <laughs> absolutely amazing. And I think he, he's actually kind of underrated outside of Leafs fans because his num- his fancy stats are not tremendous, right? He's He struggled a bit in a mm-hmm. sample away from Tavares. But like, I don't actually put that much stock in it. It's a small sample. Right, and, yeah, and, it, and he's the kind of player who gets underrated. Yeah, and and, and like yeah. these, um, like these these metrics like RAPM and, and isolated threat, and actually Martin's isolated threat is quite good. Uh, although mostly his defensive value is captured there, which is somewhat unintuitive. There's no fancy math that can make up for a lack of data, and the fact is we don't have that much data this year of Marner away from Tavares. We just don't, right? And, yep. and you can actually even see like uh, w- with Matthews in the past like five games, his our APM has increased dramatically just over five games. Like these things vary a lot and especially they vary, you know, um, if you don't have a a lot, if you don't have a large sample away from one player, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's hard to pick out, you know, who's doing what if two players are always with one another. So, you know, I I think, I think a lot of those stats underrate Marner. I think he might be overrated in the eyes of Leafs fans, but underrated in the eyes of kind of the fancy stats community. Much like I think Patrick Kane mm-hmm. has been, because Kane is also not really a possession driver, but a driver of goals through his elite offense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Marner seems like a player. He's been compared to Kane on the ice in many ways before, and if he could provide the value that Kane does on the ice, then I think the Leafs would be happy with that. Yeah, he's really shown what he can do. I mean... All the power to him. I'm still probably going to wince at his contract, but I will be glad. Yeah, to I mean, the contract's so. going to be annoying because, you know, as good as Marner <coughs> is, he, he's in the same caliber players as guys like Sebastian Ajo and Braden Point and Mikko Rantanen, and Marner will probably make more than all of them, mm-hmm. right? And that's not fun from a Leafs perspective because you're losing value there, but that's not Marner's fault. That's, you know, the, the Leafs' fault, really. Yeah, I mean, you can. I almost wonder if there's something like in the Toronto tax where it's like you're a contender and you're in like this fever dream media market. So it's very hard to get your players at a discount. Yeah. Um, I I, like, I still would like Kyle Dubas to do it. And I will be concerned if he can't, you know, kind of make the numbers work. But Marner's going to get paid in the end. And he's not going to get paid like 11 million or something like that. But. He's mostly worth it, so who cares? Yeah. All right, so the last thing I have here is that uh, we need Jake Gardner. We oh my really, God. really need Jake Gardner. And, you know, the more you look into it, you want, the more you realize how much of the Leafs' improved shot metrics this year as opposed to last year are almost entirely attributable to, hey, Jake Gardner's had a much better year this year than last. Yeah. Like, we're the Jake Gardner show. That's kind of, that's how it feels sometimes. I had a saying for a while that was, as Jake Gardner goes, so go the Leafs. And it's not totally true, but it's pretty true. You know, it's very noticeable when he's gone because we have such limited 
depth on defense. And we have so few people, we have zero people really, who can replicate what he does for us. You know, when he's gone, there is a big hole. And there's not a lot we can do about it because he's a very hard player to replace. He's just so good. <laughs> and, and the problem is, um, there aren't really good free agent defensemen. Which is part of the reason why mm-hmm. Gardner is going to be so in demand from other teams. Um, yeah. So, you know, maybe we can find an underappreciated guy. Colin Miller is always the guy I see brought up, and he's a guy who I like a lot. Mm-hmm. Nick Jensen would have been, uh, but then he signed with Washington and ruined our dreams. Yeah. Maybe an undervalued guy like Troy Stetcher out of Vancouver. Um, but the reality is it's going to be tough to replace Gardner. And, you know, we actually said the same thing about Van Riemsdyk last year, and we, we made the caveat that, like, Unless we sign John Tavares, and that's not going to happen, then it's going to be hard to sign yeah. JVR uh, or yeah. replace JVR. And, I mean, thank God we did sign John Tavares, and he has more than replaced mm-hmm. JVR. Although, you know, I will note, um, so many people credited all of JVR's power play goals to Marner. Nah. Nah. No. <laughs> JVR earned a lot of, uh, of those goals. He's as good a net front player as there is, I think. Uh, he's just so very, very good. Yeah, he, he he is he is maybe the best in the world. Like he and Joe Pavelski is the other guy that comes to mind. Are just mm-hmm. so good at that particular skill. Um, but anyways, back to Gardner. Like, th- there's no real way of replacing him externally this year unless we we find someone in a trade, and then that that's always a bit tough to ex- figure out a priori because you know we don't really know mm-hmm. who is available and what they're asking for. And then, of course, in a trade, you're giving up something of value, right? Yeah, probably like Kappen or Janssen. Yeah, guess. it'd have to be. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I guess mm-hmm. more likely is that Dermot probably has to step up to replace him. And yeah. I feel confident in Dermot, but, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as... as, as that confident. <laughs> and as, no, as, as good as Dermot has been in his sheltered third-pairing role, and, you know, even, again, the, the adjusted stats for usage depict him as pretty closer, maybe even better than Gardner in terms of driving play. I am not 100% sure that that will translate into actually succeeding in that higher role. Mm-hmm. Right? So... I, neither am I. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll, 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 see, we'll see how that goes. And, you know, you, you got to hope that maybe Sandin can really shock us, and, if not next year, then the year after. But yeah. it's going to be really tough to replace Jake, and I'm going to be really sad to, to see him go. Yeah, I, I mean, I love, obviously, for a thousand reasons, I want this team to do well. But it would be really great to see this team make a serious run. Uh, if it just helps Jake Gardner get some of the credit that he's been denied, frankly, in this market for a long time, that would be kind of heartening. So Absolutely. Yeah, my, my last point was actually the same one. Because I was just like, I honestly thought that this team would cope better than it did. With Jake Gardner's absence, and obviously it coinciding with yeah. being out is not helping. Yeah, that. for sure. So I mean, but I really thought that even down those two defensemen, I didn't think this team would. Like they looked kind of shell shocked for a while there, and it, it did make me a little bit more worried about last se- uh, next season, where I was kind of just like resigned to it, and I was like, well, we got Jake Muzzin, that's the best we can do. But now I'm a bit like, are you sure there's no way we can extend him? <laughs> Because we really could use his Yeah, I mean, Mustin's an excellent player, I think, but yeah, not quite as dynamic as Gardner with the puck. And I think I think Muzzin's certainly far better than Gardner defensively. 
but the Leafs mm-hmm. kind of really need Gardner's elite passing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's going to be tough. It's going to be very, very tough to yeah. replace him. Well, anyway, on that note, he's skating again, so hopefully he's back for the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I, there wasn't anything else you wanted to discuss, right? Oh, God, no. I mean, this is going to be uh, one of our record-setting podcasts. Yeah, hun- we're at 100 minutes at this point. All right, so in that case, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Um, you could find all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.